This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. It's so easy to just think, yeah, that's just bad. It's just bad. No, it's science. It's advancement. It's progress. Well, yeah, but they're just destroying the earth. I'd love to get somebody that just is against fracking to to sit down with a guy like Dr. Morris and explain why. Well, there's earthquakes. Okay, do, why are the earthquakes happening? Because you're pumping water into the ground. Okay, explain it. So we have this tendency to have an opinion without a lot of information. And to have an opinion is great, I guess, but to have no information, you know, it's kind of a pretty empty opinion. So one of the things we might want to do is formulate your opinion with information and with education and not just information and education that comes from the one side that you love, the pro-oil or the anti-oil people, the environmentalists, but just learn. Did you know that you can drill horizontally? And did you know you can drill horizontally for a mile and a half? Do you remember when those guys were caught in the Chilean mine? They were drilling, you know, diagonally. That is pretty cool. You can drill at any angle. That's great. Someday that'll pay off when you're stuck in a mine, right? Anyway, let's just get informed. That's one of the big reasons we want to do the show is just give you more information. You can always, you know hate fracking, or you can also just understand that that fracking wasn't just destroying Mother Earth. It was also employing a lot of people, and it was finally creating security for some some families that didn't have it. Well, yeah, but it was also making a bunch of oil companies rich. Sure, okay, sure. And can we do it better? Absolutely. But it's there's there's this this give and take as we just learned between the costs and and you know the benefit and sometimes it costs money to have oil and the mere fact that in the United States we're sitting on so much oil shell oil shell that for years we have never been able to access the oil in the shell yet we're sitting on so much of it and yet we're so dependent on fuel historically from other places, even to the point that wars were maybe started. You know, I guess a little fracking and learning about it, it's helpful. It's probably, we were probably fairly blessed to all have landed on this country with so much oil and shell. Doesn't mean we need to exploit the earth. And it doesn't mean we need to hate the companies that are providing it for us. Make sense? It just seems like a more moderate view. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. If we are going to take on the idea that 70% of the workforce in the United States is disengaged, there's obviously something that uh, is not working right, right? So we have to figure out what that is. And I guess I could just go in and coach a company or work with a company to figure out what's going on with their people. Or we could just, on the radio, try to help you figure out what's going on with you. What is it that's driving you or not driving you 
And obviously, in Nikki's case, where she talks her boss from a 40-hour work week down to a 32-hour work week, took a little pay cut. But in the end, I think what she also did is she ended up basically – she knew what she was into. She knew what her driver was. She knew what moved her and what pushed her along. And I worry that many of us don't have a clue. We don't have a clue what our drivers are. So here's a little activity that I want you to – to just kind of walk through with you, and I want you to think about. Think of a situation when you feel that you are at your very, very best. Think of like a scenario where you uh, you have got your game on and you're nailing it, right? So as you think about it, who are the people that you're with in that situation? Are the people, is it kind of people-centric where it's the people you're with that make it so valuable and incredible? Or what are you doing in the situation? Are you at work? Are you performing a leadership function? Are you, you know, what are you doing? And what emotions are you feeling as you are doing this activity? It's a very basic thing. What may, where are you at your very best? Well, I'm in front of the TV watching myself some Matlock and eating some Cheetos. Okay. All right. Let's dig a little deeper then. Because <laughs> if that is your ultimate goal is just to get away from work and life so you can get to TV to watch your Netflix binge, um, then we might be missing something. Right, We might be basically missing what your driver is. Maybe your driver is to no longer be in the stressful workplace. But there's a reason why when people retire, their likelihood of uh, living longer starts to decrease and their ability to be healthier even decreases. We would think just being free from work would make us healthier, but that's not always the case. So we've got to figure out what the drivers are. Are the drivers the people around you? Are the drivers your opportunity to be creative and imaginative and inventive? Is it just being more optimistic? Sometimes work might be a difficult place for you because the people around you aren't optimistic. It's so doom and gloom, so negative. Maybe one of your drivers is to have just more playfulness or have a, a more spiritual connection to something, and you're not getting that at work. So you've got to figure out what it is that moves you. And as you look through the people that you're with and the activities you're doing, what are what's specific about the activities? What drives that activity to be so valuable to you? What is it that you are doing in that activity? Are you more creative? Are you more in a leadership role? Are you more um, you know, with people and engaging other people? Because whatever you're doing, it's telling something about you, right? It's telling you that I need to go be – I need to go be with people more. And I sit too much in my cubicle and this job is great, but it's not – I'm not where I need to be. Because if we can discern what the drivers are, for example, about being with people, then we could actually take what you do every day and start to say, how can I now engage more people at my work? It might simply be you're in a rut. You're in a habit of not talking to people in your office because, you know, you move from sales to customer support and you spend so much time on the phone talking to people that are angry that you never get to talk to the people around you. 
that might be why it's valuable to cut eight hours out of your workday so you don't have to do that as much. Or you've got to figure out a way to engage people. Maybe start taking lunches with the people around you. Um, once you kind of know the people driver and the the uh, action or the pattern driver. For example, I'm noticing, and it took a year and a half probably to get used to it, but the early schedule of the show is just hard for me. I don't think, I don't think our creator wants us up this early to do this show. Creators and Don Schlein or God? Yeah, Don Schlein. Okay. No, the real creator, and he doesn't want us up this early. Don wants us up, but it's hard. It's a hard thing for me. And but then I thought, well, what did I used to do during this time? And it was just sleeping, <laughs> wasted time. But man. It allows me to do what I love to do and it allows me to be with people that are great and it allows me to engage my emotions and my feelings in a healthier way. So it's kind of worth it, right? It's worth it. But in the end, that's a decision every one of us needs to make. What drives you? Do you feel like you're using your best gifts? How do you want to be remembered? These are all questions that you could be asking yourself. At your funeral... What would you want everyone to say about you and how you worked? What do you want your kids to say about what you contributed to in your professional life? I remember hearing at my grandfather's funeral what a great man he was. He built a company, but also how many lives he helped, how many people, how many families he took care of, of his employees that had had problems or, you know, this was back before the day where everyone was insured and in a mining company. What do you want your family to say about you and how you worked and how you changed lives? These are all questions that can help you get deeper into what drives you and what motivates you. Just go start uncovering it and see what it teaches you. And then let's see if we can't start adapting our life a little bit more to it. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, if you've watched any sporting event, from the Super Bowl to the current NCAA basketball tournament, NASCAR races, the Olympics, you name it, and you have seen some seriously aggressive sponsorship from the leading beverage companies, namely Coca-Cola and PepsiCo. Numerous athletes are spokespeople for these products, and it just strikes, you know, as a bit odd, right? Because... Here are some of the healthiest people we know, and then they just, you know, after a good workout, just throw back a Coca-Cola, a sugary beverage. Um, it seems like it doesn't quite jive, especially when we when we already know that uh, all of that sugar and, and some of the things that are in these drinks lead to other health challenges like obesity, diabetes, and poor dental hygiene. So why are sporting events and athletes, um, you know, so into pitching these products and uh, and what is really going on that keeps perpetuating and driving this industry when we know that there are so many health risks involved. Well, our next guest, Dr. Marion Nestle, joins us. She's on the phone from New York City and tells us more about the business and threat of the big beverage industry and how, what it poses on our nation's health. 
She wrote the book Soda Politics, Taking on Soda and Winning, and we're honored to have her with us. Dr. Marion Nestle, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, glad to be here, but it's Nestle, not Oh, Nestle. sorry, Nestle. I, I just I, keep I'm thinking of the drink. Related. That's right. A little hot chocolate is big. Hey, uh, not, ta- related. Not, not related to Nestle, are you, Nestle? Hey, um, Dr. Nestle, tell us about your, your – this really is kind of a mission for you, right? You've taken on health issues in general, but uh, the soda industry seems to be one of your particular favorites to focus on. Well, I've just written a book about it, so that's why. And the reason is that sugary drinks are a really easy target for public health advocates, which is what what I am. I'm interested in public health um, because the drinks are sugars and water and nothing else and some flavoring, but nothing of any redeeming nutritional value. And people consume them in very, very large amounts. In small amounts, they're not a problem, but in large amounts, they are a problem. Um, The amount of sugar that's in them is staggering. It's just under a teaspoon of sugar per ounce. Mm. Um, And if you have a 10 or if you have a 12-ounce drink, you're consuming 10 teaspoons of sugar just like that. Wow. I mean, that's, that's more than sugary cereal, isn't it? Oh, much more. Wow. And, and I mean, so that's – but that's just the sugar side. The diet beverages have salt off the chart, don't they? Salt? Yeah, sodium. No, no, very little. Oh, I thought they were higher in sodium and that's what no. was causing no. other issues. But when you think about the industry, the industry is is something – that you've kind of focused closely to in how they market and their practices. I think you compared it uh, much to some of the practices of the tobacco companies. Well, if you think about it, it's kind of amazing that a sugary drink has become a worldwide icon of America. Uh, I mean, it's kind of an, it's an astounding marketing story, and it's a story that's been told over and over and over again. Uh, the company is um, Coca-Cola particularly is brilliant in marketing um, and have made these drinks something that seems essential for sports figures, as you've pointed out. They pay sports figures to represent the product, um, and they market worldwide, and yet it's something that Again, if it's consumed in very small amounts, it's just not a problem. We're not going to worry about it at all. But it's when people are drinking liters every day or quarts every day that it becomes a real problem. It adds a lot of calories, and that much sugar coming into the body so quickly is really not good for you. Small amounts, fine. Hmm. And, and, and as a health advocate, um, you probably... I mean, the marketing is extraordinary just in and of itself. So if you're a business kind of marketing major, like, that's brilliant. But one of the things you bring up, too, it seems like, is uh, who they're targeting. And the beverage industry might be, you know, kind of about race and class in its targeting, even targeting, you know, working class or, or poor minority communities. Well, that certainly happened over the years uh, when – you want to market to the people who are going to drink your products. And as health advocacy has become more prominent, particularly in concerns about obesity and its consequences in type 2 diabetes, the people who are educated and have money are not drinking these products to the extent that they used to be. So the marketing has shifted 
towards people with less money and less education. And, of course, these are exactly the groups that have the highest prevalence of obesity and type 2 diabetes and those other problems. So the, the marketing of uh, soft drinks to low-income minorities has a very, very long and complicated history. And, in fact, I called the chapter in my book uh, Marketing to African-American and Hispanic-Americans a complicated story mm. um, because uh, minority groups were petitioned the companies and had sit-ins and demonstrations in order to get the companies to hire them oh, wow. and, to, and to advertise in their publications in the 1950s. And over the years, the companies forged very close relationships, financial relationships, with community groups. Um, of the minority communities and uh, so that they are seen as an ally. Um, and it's only in recent years when obesity and its consequences have become such a problem wow. that things have had to shift. It's complicated. And, and it really is. Um, it's almost kind of par for the course because it seems like there's a re- there's such a profound history of these of these beverages and the companies that are entrenched in our life so much that that the storyline becomes like Coca Cola is Americana, and uh, it, I mean I can only imagine if you grew up in the fifties with African American communities fighting to get jobs at Coca Cola, and then they finally get the jobs, and then all of a sudden they become targets of uh, Coca Cola. I mean it really is a it's it's a tangled web, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's not something that's simple, and it requires a great deal of uh, skill to try to figure and sensitivity to try to figure out how to deal with it. And we saw this in New York when Mayor Michael Bloomberg attempted to put a cap on the size mm-hmm. of sugary drinks that could be sold in New York City. Um, and the, Af- the major African-American and Hispanic community groups and organizations opposed what he was trying to do and supported the soda industry in its lawsuits against the city. Hmm. And it wasn't for until a couple of years later um, the, when there had been some organizing around that that other groups came in and said, oh, no, this isn't a good idea. These companies are targeting us and are contributing to the illness in our communities. Wow. That is so – it's so interesting. Um, when One of the things as you bring up the New York uh, kind of marketing or the campaign against these drinks, one of the things that I'm, I'm hearing that worked was when you just very simply delineated how much walking or and, and, and stated how much you're going to have to do to work off that 12-ounce drink. Yeah, this was a Subway poster campaign where they had big posters in the subway that said if you wanted to work off the calories in a 20-ounce soda, you would have to walk from Union Square to Brooklyn, which is about three miles. <laughs> Just um, to get rid of that sugar. Yeah, wow. and, and that's most people don't do that. Even in New York, most people do that, don't do that much walking. Yeah. So the idea that physical activity can burn off excess calories is something that doesn't work very well unless you're enormously physically active. And that's really, I guess, as, as a health advocate, 
you're trying to figure out a way to educate the population about it. Um, and, and is it working? Do you sense that your your um, your your war or your fight to make it healthier um, or to push on the soda companies is it? Are you seeing any give? Are you seeing any change? Well, you do in the educated, um, wealthier segments of the population, um, where obesity the the prevalence of obesity is is not that all that high and is leveling off, and you're not seeing so many increases where. Um, the obesity is an increasing problem is in people who are already overweight and don't have much money and don't live in areas where healthy food is available. And so it's become kind of class-based. It's, um, you know, one of those things where what you really want to do if you're doing health advocacy is to try to get into low-income communities and make it possible for people to buy food that's healthier for them. Uh, healthier food is more expensive than, yeah. um, than junk food. It, it is for lots and lots of reasons. And when people who don't have a lot of money complain that they can't afford to buy fruits and vegetables because they cost so much, they're right. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes even in their communities, they may not have the stores. They may just have like kind of the little fast food stores, not the, the full markets where there might be better options. Right, and the places that are where food is available tend to sell junk food that doesn't have to be refrigerated, that yeah. can sit on a shelf for a long time, and that doesn't cost very much and tastes good. Hmm. Is is the industry uh, succeed, is striving? Is it growing, uh, the beverage industry, or is it shrinking? It seems like we have more people drinking water, talking about water, or other healthier drinks. Well, soda companies... Uh, also produce bottled water and many, many other kinds of drinks. The uh, Coca-Cola and PepsiCo both produce about 200 different kinds of beverages, um, you know, just hundreds of options. Um, and so they're pushing the less sugary options, and they're also heavily promoting the smaller cans. Well, I can't argue against either of those. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, those are both healthier choices. Um, and then what they're really doing is shifting their marketing overseas as Americans have reduced their consumption of sugary beverages down by about 25% over the last 10 or 15 wow. years. Uh, the marketing has moved overseas. Um, and these companies are looking at Asia, India, and Africa, where, where the consumption of sugary beverages is extremely low, as enormous growth opportunities. Mm. And they're putting literally billions of dollars every year into marketing and building bottling plants and doing things in those countries. Wow. Yeah. Hey, good luck to the rest of the world as the battle's coming to them. Let's take a break. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Marion Nessel, who is the author of the book Soda Politics, Taking, a, uh, Taking on Big Soda and Winning. She's just walking us through a lot of her work, her history um, as a health advocate and is, is teaching us uh, what's really going on in the soda industry and some things we need to pay attention to. We'll be right back, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking with uh, Dr. Marion Nessel, who is the author of Soda Politics, Taking on Big Soda and Winning. She is a health advocate, uh, leading health advocate for better food safety in the United States. She's also a professor of sociology at NYU and a visiting professor of nutritional sciences at Cornell. She was a professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at uh, New York University um, from 1988 to 2003. Dr. Nessel, welcome back to the show, and thanks for being with us. Hi, and I'm still at NYU. Oh, are you still there? Yeah, I chaired the department from 1988 to 2003. Now I'm just a professor, but I'm still there. But you're a busy, you're a busy woman. Yes, we got. You know what? It's and, and I think you're. It's busy in a good way because we're taking on um, uh, the beverage companies, big soda, and, and in in a way, I mean, I guess you've, you're an educator. You just your goal, I guess, is to just give people better tools to to lead a healthier life. Yeah, I just think if people, I think healthy diets are easy. All you have to do is eat your veggies and not eat too much and don't eat too much junk food. It's as simple as that. <laughs> yeah. um, and I really love to eat. I enjoy food. I think food is one of life's greatest pleasures. And I want everyone to be able to enjoy their food and not have it make them get sick. Yeah. And, and um, I guess that's part of this is a lot of us just kind of go on autopilot and just take whatever's there and, and you know, believe whatever is being offered. But these companies, they don't just even sell soda. They also sell snacks. And oh, the, no. the snacks and the soda kind of go hand in hand. Well, they certainly do. And, you know, I mean, in some ways, PepsiCo is much better protected from concerns about sugary drink consumption because it makes lots of other products. Mm-hmm. It owns Lay's, for example. So it makes potato chips and snack products and cereals and other kinds of things. Um, it's a bigger problem for Coca-Cola, which only markets drinks. Does, um, what's happening with these energy drinks? We see uh, the kids, it's a big kind of push, all these energy drinks. It obviously is also marketed, it seems like, to younger people in a way that it just it's all the cool stuff. It's, it's all the extreme sports. Uh, what's the energy drink world? What's it doing on, on our health and the impact to the bottom line of these companies? Well, it, the sales of energy drinks are increasing, and they're being marketed heavily, uh, and particularly to young men. Um, who are the targets for a lot of advertising of products that aren't particularly healthy. Uh, But the sales of energy drinks have not compensated totally for the decline in sales of the standard Hmm. Coke and Pepsi. Um, but they're but they're rising, and a lot of people are really concerned about them. Not because of the sugar so much; they have somewhat less sugar, um, but they have an awful lot of caffeine. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a whole other side of the beverage industry is the caffeine side. Is is it was the caffeine uh, an attempt to create a hook? Well, you know, they started out with cocaine. Yeah, but that was a so, very very long time ago. But so it has and gotten that, better, Marion. And, oh, it's gotten better, yeah. Um, and there's very little caffeine in either Coke or Pepsi. Mm. There's, there's a little bit, but very, very little. Um, so it's it's really not a problem. The only thing that's a problem in these drinks that 
really matters is the sugar. And again, it's just because there's so much of it. Um, the It's funny, I, I spent the last couple of months on a research project in Australia, and while I was there, the head of Coca-Cola Australian for Australia and New Zealand made a statement that um, she didn't really understand what the problem was. If you had one can of uh, Coca-Cola a week, there was nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I totally agree. Yeah, right. I mean, but I guess that's that's different than, you know, a family, an inner city family that has five, each person has five a day because that's all yeah. they're drinking. Or young men in general who are the target audience for a lot of this, mm-hmm. who are drinking um, a couple of quarts of this stuff a day. Mm. Not a good idea. Well, and, and maybe the motives are, are a little bit um, suspect simply because of the history where, I mean, just a few years ago, there was a big scandal about these companies, you know, paying researchers to validate the healthiness of these things or the lack of health issues. Yes, that's a, another big issue of mine and um, and something that concerns me a lot is when food companies are sponsoring research to give them the kinds of results that they can use in marketing. And the beverage companies over the last several years have um, sponsored research to demonstrate that sodas have no impact on health, that the major nutritional surveys in the United States that show that sodas are associated with poor health uh, are so badly flawed that you don't need to pay Mm. attention to them. And then in particular, and the one that has gotten the most publicity, is the research to indicate that you don't have to worry about what you eat. It's how active you are that counts. Mm. Yeah, right. It's just more about how much exercising you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I'm greatly in favor of physical activity. I think everybody would be healthier being more active. Uh, but it's really, really difficult to work off the calories in, that, are, that are in excess uh, because the way I think of it is it's about 100 calories a mile. So you have to walk or run a mile for every 100 calories of food that you take in mm. to, balance, to balance it off. And for a lot of people, that's really a lot. Oh, for sure. Um you uh, that is so that's what worries you is if they're going to kind of skew the research and then use that to misinform then that becomes even more egregious more more of a problem yeah and these companies spend a lot of money on this research i mean coca-cola to its credit has um it started an transparency initiative in which it has now revealed publicly the names of all of the organizations and individuals that it funds. Hmm. And that has um, created a lot of response, and some of these organizations are pulling out. (laughs) They were happy to take money from Coca-Cola when they didn't have to disclose it. Now they're they're not so happy about it when it's been disclosed for them. Um, and it's not clear to me how all of this is going to play out, but I give Coca-Cola a lot of credit for uh, taking this initiative and following through on it. Are, are they – in the end, do you – I mean I know there was a comparison to like big tobacco, but it seems like they might be uh, still a better community support than tobacco was. 
Well, I'm not I'm not sure what you're asking, but the uh, I mean obviously sodas are not tobacco because you can consume them in small amount and they don't make any difference. Um I'm not sure that's the case with tobacco and the level of addiction is certainly quite different. But the marketing and the protection of sales is very very similar. So the tobacco industry um began by attacking the science and trying to get it to develop its own science. It uh, sponsored community organizations. Lots and lots of arts organizations were sponsored by uh, tobacco companies. And then it worked behind the scenes to lobby against any kind of regulations of tobacco to make sure that the federal government didn't pass any laws that would reduce that would lead to reduced sales. Hmm. So, and the, I mean, all companies that are selling products do the same things, and soda companies do these things too. And yeah. in that ways, and in that way, there are similarities. In the article, um, uh, I think it was by NPR, you you told a story about how you went to Coca-Cola's headquarters in Atlanta and you sat and watched a movie. Um, talk to us about your experience in the in their version of kind of uh, Coca-Cola and America, I guess it was. Oh, it was an extraordinary experience. Uh, this is Coca-Cola World in Atlanta, and um, you, it's their museum of Coca-Cola products, and there's a tasting room and a whole lot of other things, and a, an enormous gift shop. Hmm. Um, but the, before you can get into any of that, you are required to watch a, um, about a, a short video. And this video isn't anything about selling Coca-Cola directly. It's a video about family values and love and great moments in people's lives. And it was extraordinarily touching. Mm. Uh, There was a particularly touching vignette about a uh, soldier in Afghanistan who um, his family misses terribly, and they're at a ball game, and a picture of him comes up on the screen, and then he walks out. Hmm. And, you know, his family hasn't seen him in years. And there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Yeah, right. I mean, not one. It was just immensely touching. And so then you walk out of this video and you've been emotionally moved. Yeah. And then you're ready to start looking at Coca-Cola. Yeah, what, and what does that have to do with Coca-Cola? Well, at the end of it, they, they're drinking Coca-Cola, <laughs> but it's very low-key. But it, again, it's the it's back to the good feeling, love, family, America. And American, and American values. Mm-hmm. I mean, hmm. really deep American values. And they do that extraordinarily well. And then you get to go and look at the history of Coca-Cola and um, this big exhibit about the secret formula. And on the day that I was there, there was an enormous troop of Tibetan monks who were oh, going wow. through. So it was just a surreal <laughs> that experience. That was. And then you exit through the largest gift shop I've ever seen, and people are checking out with shopping carts full of Coca-Cola branded products. Holy cow. Well, I mean, Um, it's got to be scary, Marion, when you walk in to Coca-Cola, you'd think all of the the alarms would be going off and they would be (laughs) having security following you the entire time. Um, You would. They actually turn out to be the nicest people in the world. Mm, That's great.
That's great. Well, we appreciate your insight. Um, anything, just as we leave, what's one thing that the rest of us, just everybody listening should take away? What's the one thing that if we all remember this interview would be the key thing to remember about soda and our health? A larger portions have more calories. That's all you got to know, huh? That's all you have to know. If you're going to be eating and drinking these things, keep the amount small. Yeah. Good job. Appreciate you. Dr. Marion Nessel, thank you for your time and your insight. Wonderful, wonderful insight. Um, You know, it is. It's uh, moderation. Hello. And eat your vegetables, as she taught us. Eat your vegetables. Smaller portions. Have one or two sodas a week. Watch out for the sugar. It's liquid candy. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show, helping you get the information you need to live longer We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Moderation. Uh, it's pretty much what we, we learned from Dr. Marion Nessel. It's the sugar, folks. The sugar will kill you, and which is, again, why we get all over you. When you bring those Kool-Aid uh, drinks and you just drink Kool-Aid all day? It's it's the commercials that get me, I think. Is it? Yeah. Like the, the they, big Kool-Aid just, thing running through the wall? That that gets you? No, just like everybody seems so happy and so cool and so popular. And, and the so kids I have friends. If Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I think maybe well, you, if I bring Kool-Aid. Maybe you'll have friends. Yeah. Oh, well, that's one way to do it. it you, you might. The problem is the mustache. You've got that red mustache all the time. Yeah. That's just, it just makes you look younger than you are. You so know? 12 instead of 14. And when you keep saying, hey, Kool-Aid, when you say that, that's like, it's weird. I'm just thinking, I just, you know, might be better that you just bring some Coke. Yeah. Anybody want a Coca-Cola? Hey, kid, catch. Do you remember that commercial? Was that over your age head? I don't know. Mean Joe Green? No. This kid brings him a Coke because he just got handed his hat in a football game. And the kid brings, hey, hey, Mean Joe, you want a Coke? And he gives Mean Joe Green a Coca-Cola. And Mean Joe drinks his entire Coca-Cola. And then hands him the bottle, I guess. And the kid walks away and he's like, hey, kid, catch. And he throws him his jersey. This big sweaty... Jersey is a moving, moving moment. Right then, I knew I loved Coke. And, and you went out. You went out to buy like five cokes. Yeah, well, I couldn't afford it. I was a kid. Yeah. But I asked my mom to buy me a Coke. It's that, that's the thing. It's marketing with these good feelings, right? That's how they get you. Well, we'll help you, Ben. We'll find we'll find you some friends. Thank you. It'll be hard, but we'll find you some. I have Kool-Aid, so if like <laughs> that factors into the equation at all, like I'm I'm ready. But I mean, you if you've ever made Kool-Aid, for example, you know there's a lot of sugar in there. I mean, because I tried to make Kool-Aid without sugar, not good. Well, the only reason I ever make Kool-Aid is so I can see the powder drop into the water. Oh, really? Yeah. Like it doesn't taste that good to me. I but just, that, like, but what is it about the the powder dropping into the water that you like? Just, look, just the artistic. Cool. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, that's cool. A little weird. <laughs> but, you know. Um, okay. A little weird. <laughs> We're not going to belabor the point, but that's just weird. Anyway. Nothing else? Nope, that's about it. That's all I can think of is that is one weird kid. Mom, can we make some more Kool-Aid? You never drink it, Benny. Hi, Mom. I just want to see the colors. You could get the same effect with some food dye, right? And just some water. No, it has to be powder. Oh, you like the powder? Yeah. Okay. I guess I don't have to put sugar in it. Let's just chalk that up right there to another weird moment with Ben Wasden. Another weird moment with Ben Wasden. We'll take a break, folks. That's hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Got a great uh, show next hour. Next hour, we're going to be talking about uh, Too Big to Know, rethinking your knowledge, and uh, maybe how, how we have to change our concept of learning and knowing. Interesting stuff. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. This morning we're talking about failure. Have you ever been there? Have you ever just blown it? Like majorly just blown it. Ah, oh, the embarrassment, the shame. Just the the blow to your game and to your mindset. But the reality of failure, uh, it's everywhere. We all experience it, and uh, to some degree, you need to experience it if you want to be able to progress and to move on in life. Um, one of the reasons why we bring it up is because uh, we seem to be raising a generation of people that, that think that you know we ought not let our kids fail too much. The, the problem with that is that's not natural. You're supposed to fail. In fact, quite honestly, you better fail, right? Because failure would mean change. Failure means growth. Failure means it's time to figure something out. Wouldn't you need to have failure to actually know what success is? How many times have you seen uh, one of your children maybe had a really great team, an incredible baseball team or whatever, and they just kept winning and winning and winning and winning and winning. And then, you know, they get to a tournament and they get killed. And (laughs) these kids are not used to failure. But failure happens every single day. Uh, Think about the first time you played a sport and it was your chance to win the game on the free throw line. Did that ever happen? Ben, for example, in his dating life, Nothing but failure, right, Ben? Oh, you have no idea. No idea right, no idea wrong. So, yeah, my dating life's horrible. Really? Let's talk about it just for a minute. What? (sighs) Yeah, right? You're breathing through your mouth again. Oh, sorry. So a little failure. I mean, you're not failing dramatically, right? It's just a little failure. Three restraining orders. Okay, yeah, that's failure. That's, boy. Really? I'm just trying to be nice, you know. Is, the th- are the, is that three different people? Um, or is that one person, no, you know, it's three been, different it's orders? No, it's been renewed. Okay, so wow. So one of them's been renewed one time, and then there's a separate one. Yeah, a second yeah. one. Huh. We got to, yeah, that's weird. Maybe you're pushing too hard. Seems like really? you're pushing too hard. I, I just thought, like, confidence was supposed to. <laughs> 
Is that what you do? You act confident, so confident that you scare them? I guess so. Yeah. Like, See, again, that's a perfect example, Ben. That's why we need failure. You know, the failure to be able to, you know, get a date should teach us something. And there are steps that we we should take to help us get through this. There are actual steps that we should learn to make sure that we're not, you know, always just failing. Four Keys to Learning from Failure by Dr. Guy Winch, who's been on the program two or three times. He uh, He's a blogger on Psychology Today and um, also uh, has this post that made it to Huffington Post, which is four keys to learning from your failure. Now, Ben, I want you to listen up because yes. – we're going to use your dating examples as we go through this um, and also just, you know, the the police interventions, the tasing, the stuff like that as, as a tool to help us through this. Uh, first key that Dr. Winch teaches us in his article, because failure is inherent, right? But there's usually going to be a breakdown that would cause a failure in, in a few areas. So the first area is your planning, right? So if you haven't if you don't plan if you don't prepare to plan you no know, if you fail to prepare then prepare to fail that's the axiom but i i do plan okay so obviously let's evaluate your planning so for these dates that you like you keep coming in and saying i, I went i had another date and she didn't show had another date and she didn't show had another date and she didn't show so you must not be planning very well. Well, I tell her specifically, drive yourself to Moab and I will meet you there. Moab, which is hundreds and hundreds of miles away. Yeah, but like she she okay. could probably find her way. Well, yeah, but did you even – does she even know you at this point? Um, I mean we sat next to each other a couple times in class. Okay, yeah. See, you, you have to evaluate your planning because it's A, you have to actually know the woman before she'll go to Moab with you. Okay. B, you usually don't like set up a date that's hundreds of miles away unless you really know each other. And so it usually would be better to pick her up, say, hey, let's drive together. Got a bunch of friends that will be down there. We can hang out. There will okay. be a place for the ladies and a place for the gentlemen. What, what happens if you don't have a lot of friends that are going to be there? Then we probably ought not be going to Moab with a lady. See, that's where you're losing it. So if we reevaluate your planning – then any breakdown, you know, so for the team that didn't win the championship and they were all a little messed up because, boy, that defense that they faced in the championship game blew them away, then we probably didn't plan very well to have our kids ready for any defense. Right? Okay. So it's about a planning problem. So, And we, we are seeing that that's what's happening to your dating. There's just a failure to plan. So planning, I'm going to – Mark that there. Yeah, planning. We, you have to spend more time thinking about who this person is. She has to actually know you. You probably ought to be on three or four dates before you take her to Moab. Okay. So how how does she get to know me then? Okay, that would be that would be different. That would be your ex. That would be your um, your execution. So is that step number two? That would be three. Then oh. so so once you have to you have you reevaluate your planning. Did we plan ahead? Then your preparation, like did you did you date her enough? Did you have your head 
wrapped around this strongly enough? Were you in the right place? Do you have the communication skills? Do you have the ability to carry a conversation with somebody longer than, you know, 10 minutes? Because if you're going to Moab, it's going to be a long time together. So failure is your inability to be prepared enough. Do you know who she is? Do you know what ladies like to talk about? Do you know what this lady specifically likes to talk about? Yeah. You didn't prepare. Well, I I usually have like um – a, like a list of things I can talk about on the car ride. Well, I guess if we're taking separate cars, I would never be able to use those. Yeah. Okay. So. Well, and you don't even have a car. True. So preparation would say that that plan's not going to work. The minute you're like, okay, which car should I take? You don't have a car. So if I buy if I buy a car, I should be good on the preparation side. Right. What would happen if it started raining in Moab? And you found out that there's going to be storms there all weekend. Do you have another plan? You need another. So you got to be prepared because what happens if you guys, you know, what happens if she does have you arrested? Can you post I'm, bail? I'm very prepared on that front, though, on the arrested side. I, I know what to do for that. So what, what our good expert is teaching us is, Dr. Guy Winch, is that if you have a plan, then you got to make sure you're prepared to implement the plan. Right, you got to be able to deliver on the goods. You got to be able to do what needs to be done. So again, the basketball team do we do we have a do we have a plan? Our own game plan. Have I prepared my kids for what could be inevitably changes to the plan? Have we prepared them with other schemes? Have we prepared them? You know, are they in good enough shape? Are they mentally prepared? Do we have all that done? The next tool he teaches is your execution. So it's not enough to just have a really good plan and to have people prepared. Did they execute on what we said we were going to do? And see, if you don't, after the date, go back and learn this, Ben, then you're just going to keep having the same dates over and over. Yeah. Is that what you're noticing? Yeah. I, so I, I like plan out what I'm going to say and like how I'm going to ask her out. But a lot of times it turns into German. And so I start talking to ger- – Okay. Ger- so no, that's huge. Maybe, yeah, your execution's off. Maybe that's why she doesn't come because I tell her mm-hmm. to meet me in Moab yeah. in German. Well, in fact, you got to watch out for that because Donald's Trump, Donald Trump's people are now saying that Cruz is using Gestapo-type techniques. What does Gestapo mean in German? I don't know. Look that up. But you're probably not executing because when you get nervous, you probably go all German on her. That's that's probably true. That makes sense. And I mean, it's like it's not a bad thing to be German on her. But no, like, she, if she's she German, no. But if yeah. she's not German, it's a okay. bad thing. So speak in English. I, I've planned in English. Mm-hmm. You've prepared. In, okay. Yeah, we were going to do this whole thing in English. Then the next thing you know, you went off all German on her. Nothing wrong with German. Fantastic thing. But you got to you got to do better. And then last but not least, of course, after you've evaluated your execution of it is uh, you got to figure out what of everything we talked about you can control. And you can control your German. You can control your prep. You can control how much you know her. You can control these things. And then focus on what you can change, right? Focus on your variables that you can control. It's an easy plan. It's easy. Four keys to learning from your failure by Dr. Guy Winch. 
Stick with us. We'll uh, continue the journey, helping you live longer and love stronger, lead healthier lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Little Paul Simon. Great tunage. Hey, are you a fact checker? According to Google, the search engine performs over 3.5 billion searches per day. That's about 40,000 searches per second. And our society has the ability to get answers to all sorts of weird questions. For example, from what's the name of those things on the end of my shoelaces? Um, those are called aglets, by the way. And and to what the what's the situation in Brussels? With all this information, one truly important question to consider, and one that you can't necessarily search out and get a great answer on on Google, is this: What are we really learning? What are we learning with all of this information and information overload? Dr. David Weinberger is our guest today. He is the author of Too Big to Know: Rethinking Knowledge. Now that the facts aren't the facts. Experts are everywhere, and the smartest person in the room is the room. He now joins us live from Boston to talk to us about uh, this knowledge, uh, uh, the need to rethink knowledge. Dr. David Weinberger, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, Matt. Great to have you on the show. Uh, This is, it is, it's true, it's overwhelming, right? We've never probably in the history of the world had more information at our fingertips, and yet information doesn't always equal wisdom or knowledge, does it? No, um, and, I, and I'm not sure how overwhelming it is. Um, I'm not overwhelmed, and I doubt that you actually feel overwhelmed, and I bet that most of your listeners, except that we're constantly told that we're overwhelmed, mm. don't actually feel overwhelmed, because we go to the sites that we go to, we ask the questions that we want, that we want answers to. We have our, most of us, I think, at this point, have developed our ways in which we get our news and uh, have more extended discussions. I think a lot of times the, the discussion about uh, the idea that we are overwhelmed, the uh, uh, concept of information uh, over, being overwhelmed does have a little history, and in part it's, it's due to that. But I think it's also in part due to maybe focusing too much on facts, because uh, facts are not knowledge, as you say. Um, and most of what we do on the net or that we do in our life, and this has always been the case, is it has nothing to do with gathering facts. We do that occasionally, and the Internet is fantastic at it. Right. The fact that you can get this information, you're carrying it around in your pocket on, on your phone, um, is, is awesome. But that, for me, is really just the, that's just the beginning. And to think that, that what, if you're looking for knowledge on the net, that you should look at um, where we're gathering facts, I think, does a disservice to to knowledge and to um, what's happening on the net. So what? I would look other places. Uh, you know, I would look at um, discussion forums, um, uh, Stack Overflow. If you are a if you're a developer, if you're a programmer, which is an amazing site that millions of developers go to, where you can ask a question and an anonymous community uh, gives answers. You know, how do I do this and this or that programming language? Hmm. It's, a, it's an amazing resource, but it's not about facts. It's a little bit more about conversation and discussion. 
So, um, there's so many sites like that. And that's where I think you can see a real change in what knowledge is um, occurring. And, and it, it seems like it's kind of a – it is flowing in a conversation. Um, I guess that's the – I guess the, the overwhelm that I see is when you go trying to research an idea – um, I, or my kids are trying to research an idea, and all of a sudden, thirty-five thousand sites come up, or sources, to go find out information. And the first six of them are marketed. Um, how do we sort through the knowledge that matters, the information that matters? Uh, we are still figuring that out, and it is the. And it is absolutely something that you have to – children or none of us do naturally. Right. None of us is natural no. behavior. It never was. Right? I mean, so that's why we have schools, for example. Um, so we do have to be care, uh, thinking really carefully about uh, how we teach our children how to use this awesome and bewildering at times and dangerous at times resource. So, yeah. And, and – so there's a lot of people thinking about that, um, but there's also every site um, is maybe too much of a generalization, but not that much. I mean, every site has ways to guide you to the information that it wants you to to find. And if the site is on your side, then it's not giving you corrupt uh, information that somebody has paid them to promote. And you know, Google and the search engines, the big search engines, um, do a pretty good job of marking. Um, the the results that they're giving you that are, in fact, advertisements. Hmm. Uh, they do a pretty good job. Um, and there are sites that absolutely do want to fool you. I mean, you know, they give you information as if it weren't paid, and they get very, very good at doing that, unfortunately. Yeah. But how, you know, how, do, you fi- how do you find the information that's reliable? It's something that we need to learn, and we talk about this amongst ourselves all the time, and it should be a very active topic in every classroom at this point. Right. But it's also something that sites have been dealing with now for 20 years. How do we get the right information to our users? Um, uh, there's not an easy or single answer to this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does You actually have a hierarchy that you mentioned, um, a data, information, knowledge, wisdom hierarchy. Maybe walk us through that. What do you mean by that? Well, that's actually an idea that uh, that comes out of um, from the 1990s, and it's an idea I think I think is fundamentally wrong. So it's a hierarchy that if you go to business strategy meetings, you see put up on the board all the time. Um, and the the idea, which I think is a wrong idea, the idea is that data is all of the data in the world, and then you refine the data, you filter it, you get information, you refine the information, you get knowledge, you refine the knowledge, you get wisdom. And I think basically none of that is true. And the thing that's most you can have all the information in the world and not have any knowledge, and you can have all the knowledge in the world, and you just you just don't know it all. It has right. nothing to do with right. leading to wisdom. Um, for me, the, the really important way this goes wrong is it's that's described as a pyramid with data at the bottom and wisdom at the top because you're filtering um, at each step. And that's how we had to do things when knowledge was communicated and preserved on paper. Paper is expensive. It's It's bulky. Um, and so we've had over the over the centuries, um, we've we've pursued knowledge by having to filter out most of the stuff. Or very few manuscripts actually get published, and very few of those make it into a library. Hmm. Physically, you know, it's expensive, and the library would have to be the size of you know multiple football stadiums. So we've managed knowledge by reducing it. And now, for the first time, and we've paid an enormous cost for doing that. I mean, obviously there are benefits, but we've paid a 
big price because all sorts of voices that should have been heard but didn't have access to the presses simply weren't heard. Right. I mean, uh, quickly to put it is, uh, you know, old white men basically decided in the West what we heard. Uh, Voices were squelched um, with good intentions by the old white men, but, you know, that's what happened. Yeah. Um, And now we don't have, we don't have to do that. We don't have to filter on the way in. We don't have to reduce everything. So if, if I'm a blogger, just a quick example, if I'm a blogger and I want to post my top 10 list of great resources about economics, online, you know, whatever, or politics or, or anything, I can do that and I'll put in my links. But so I, I have filtered it. That's exactly what I've done, right? I've gone through the mass and I said, here are the 10 that are really good. Right. But I haven't removed anything. It's not like a publisher who won't publish a manuscript and now you can't find it. That's the old type of filtering. On the Internet, we filter not out, but we filter forward. So when I put in those links, that list of 10, all I've done is shorten the number of clicks that it takes you to get to those 10. But the other million things I could have cited, they're still there. Mm-hmm. And you can find them in a search. You can find, you know, somebody else links to them. Yeah. So we no longer have to filter out. It's no longer a reductive idea of knowledge. It's an inclusive idea of knowledge. And I think that fundamentally changes everything. Oh, yeah. Isn't that interesting? And um, the book, your book uh, that you co-authored, The Clue Train Manifesto, I mean, that, how, when did that come out? Ten years ago? Oh, <laughs> uh, 2000. Was, was it 2000? I remember reading that on an airplane because I had studied dialogue theory and the importance of communication and, you know, kind of group think. And I thought, holy cow, this is the turn of understanding. And so so maybe explain to us what 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 are the skills that we need in today's day and age to manage the flow of information and and the and really because like you were saying, it's almost a conversation that needs to be had um, through this process with other like-minded people in chat groups or or other groups. Maybe explain what are some of the tools that would help us facilitate our understanding better? Well, it's, it's, it's a great question. It's, um, it's the big question. Yeah, huge so, question. Um, for one thing, the um, recognizing the importance of conversation is a way in which humans make sense of their world. Right, right. right. That's what talking does, right? It's really, really important. And it's very different from the old idea in the age of paper, where just because of the nature of paper, a single person got to speak, and you read it, and you couldn't respond. And Books are not a conversational medium, and obviously there are advantages to books, but... And this is something, by the way, that Socrates noted you know, 2,500 years ago when he was arguing against literacy, writing things down. It was you write something down and you cannot have a conversation with the author. Mm. So recognizing the importance of conversation. Second thing is also recognizing that the Internet is a global space. You can talk with anybody around the world, but we are all local creatures. That is, our... It's not, it's not even our set of beliefs that are relatively local, local to your nation, to your community, to your faith, to your parents. It's also just the mechanics of talking, how you have a conversation, um, how long you're allowed to talk before somebody can interrupt, how off-topic you're allowed to go, how, how funny you're allowed to be, and in what sort of humor mm-hmm. can you tease. You, know, you think you're just teasing, but somebody from another culture, which might actually just be... You know, 
100 miles away, or but it might be uh, 5,000 miles away. Right. You're, te- you're teasing. They think you're being abusive, and you are being abusive in their culture. Right. Um, so recognizing that conversations are very delicate, and the mechanics of them are governed by local rules that that you inhabit, you don't even recognize them. So being um, aware of that and deferential and careful and respectful and treating people with dignity are all requirements simply for having a conversation. Um, If you are providing information, um, you're putting up a site, then one of the things I think to keep in mind is that in the old days when resources were constrained, if you were a library, you would filter on the way in. So you would decide which books are going to make it in, which ones aren't. Um, On the Internet, it's generally both better and less expensive to include everything. Put everything in. Don't decide ahead of time what Mm -hmm. your users are going to be interested in because nobody can know what people are going to be interested in. Right. That's true, huh? You don't need to edit it as much. Just get it out there. Get it out there and then give them good ways of, of, of finding it. You know, um, yeah, you and know, sorting it, yeah. Let the, yes, let them sort it. Yeah, exactly, yeah, so, yeah, methods that they can do that easily. Uh, yes. So, in a, you know, I've, I've spent about the past five years in library technology and physical libraries, which are, you know, I, I love, but they have this terrible constraint, which is every book has to go on only one shelf. <laughs> and yeah. that's not how books work. That's not a natural thing for books. Not a natural thing for all the stuff at Amazon either. That's right. Um, they, they, people think about how to cluster things differently based upon their, their needs. Um, so if you can avoid making a single choice about what category to put something in and to let somebody do a, even a complex search where they're specifying things that matter to them, but you could not have anticipated would matter to them, that's a far, far better thing to do. And that's very common on the, on the net now. But it's a very different way of thinking about how the world is organized. That's right. We were about efficiencies, huh, with paper, I guess, and, and typesetting where you had to actually set all the type. Use your words carefully. But now you're saying it can be abundant. Get everything out there and it doesn't – everything doesn't have to be in its place. I mean everything can be where it needs to be and just make it sortable, accessible. Exactly. And even the idea of thinking that things have a place. Yeah. I mean that's the problem. They don't. Um, it depends. Things place. It depends upon what you are trying to do. Uh, yeah. If you're in a grocery store and they have you know the normal way of sorting, but you don't want to see anything that has gluten in it, or you don't want to see anything that has salt or sugar, or they can't sort it all those ways for you. Right. Everything has to be you know. But you can electronically. You can digitally. You can. So the information um, world can is is maybe in a way more fit. For the way our brain actually operates, um, it, it well might be okay. Um, it has an important effect on knowledge, though, if I can bring it back to yeah. that. Because in the West, um, ever since the Greeks, and this is I think clearest in Aristotle, we've had the idea that to know what something is is to know its essence, that, which is a definition. Yeah. So we are the rational animals, and birds are the feathered bipeds, you know, two-legged animals mm-hmm. that have feathers. Um, and that's, it, that's what knowing what those things are. It's knowing the single place of things in the, in the grand structure of the universe. And so if, in fact, 
the the reason that we've had to sort things physically into single places is simply that they're physical. They can only be in one place at a time. Then maybe our idea of knowledge as finding the single place of things in the grand logic and order of the universe, maybe that idea arose from the limitations of the physical. Hmm. And now that things don't have to have a single place definition or a single way of finding them, it changes our idea of what constitutes knowledge. And I think, personally, I think in a useful way. Oh, I do too. And I mean, again, it could... Yeah, thinking out of that kind of that um, constricted physical realm, all of a sudden you might be able to have a thought that can create this spark of synergy or whatever you want to call it, energy or an opportunity that hasn't necessarily existed in a in a certain kind of environment. Um, Powerful. Let's take a break and continue this discussion after the break. Again, we're speaking with Dr. David Weinberger. If you've ever heard of the book, uh, The Clue Train Manifesto, he was a co-author of that 15 or so years ago. He also um, wrote recently an article in The Atlantic, To Know But Not Understand, David Weinberger on Science and Big Data. He was interviewed there, and um, they picked his brain, quite honestly, and we're going to try to do the same thing. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, Understanding knowledge and information um and maybe the new the new realm the new world we need to see it in stick with us we'll be right back welcome back everybody to the matt townsend show on the line with us, Dr. Uh, David Weinberger from Boston, and um, he is uh, enlightening us about, you know, information and the information age, uh, really about some of the changes we might want to be um, at least thinking about when it comes to knowledge, uh, you know, uh, aggregation, assimilation, evaluation, how we go about learning, how we go about thinking in this new age, Um and I think he's just opening up our minds. Dr. Weinberger is a senior researcher at the Berkman Center at Harvard University, and he's been a philosophy professor, a journalist, a strategic marketing consultant, Internet entrepreneur, and the Franklin Fellow at the U.S. State Department. Dr. David Weinberger, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Um, I mean, it really is. In your your side of this, you can hear your philosophy, uh, your uh, your philosopher coming out. But it really is maybe a time and an age to start reevaluating how we see the world, how we see life uh, now that we have access to so much information. Um, and ta- talk to us just a little bit about um, what, what, what are some of the changes you see happening? What are some of the changes that we might want to start opening our minds up for uh, in the future? Well, I think you you put your finger on part of it when you said that this may be a more natural way for our brains to work. And I, you know, I'm not I don't know anything about brains, so I don't know about that. But it seems to me that we are are already in in many ways a more nat. Despite the fact that it's the internet and it's all digital and none of that is natural. Yeah. In some ways, I think it is. So if if you're old enough, if and you have to be pretty old at this point, and you remember <laughs> newspapers. <laughs> um, as the thing that you read in the yeah, morning. Yeah, every morning. Right? And, 
least every morning that was it, or the 22 minutes of evening news. But, so you get in the newspaper, they still work this way, the printed ones, and you read an article and you're really excited about it, uh, whatever it is. You know, it could be physics or it could be politics, it could be Kardashians, doesn't matter. <laughs> you're reading it and it's just, it's, you've got ideas, you've got questions, you want to know more. But you couldn't. You got what they put into that rectangle on, right. the, on the page, and that was, that was it. I mean, there literally was no place else you could go. You could go to the library, maybe, and, but you're not going to get the current. No, oh, right. It's, it's now that would that thought that you only got what they gave you, or the encyclopedia so, that was thirty yeah. years old. Exactly, right. Britannica. Yeah, which was the, you know the the best English <laughs> language. It came out once a generation. They would revise it, right. and. You know, I had 65,000 articles, which is a lot. Yeah. But if you look at editions over time, it, one of the historical biographies, um, I looked at Oliver Goldsmith, you know, a British writer. Every edition, it gets shorter and shorter hmm. because they, they have new stuff they have to put in and they, right. they can't get much bigger than they are. So yeah. uh, we're throwing out information. Uh, they didn't want to do it, but they, every edition, they throw out information to make room for more. These are crazy things. We would ne- Nobody sat down and said, you know what would be really good? Let's have a medium where you get exactly what somebody else has written, and you can't ask any questions, and there's no place else to turn if you become curious about hmm. it. And you know what? Every edition, let's throw out a whole bunch of information. Good information, but, you know, we don't have room. This True. is not a good system. And it no longer now the idea that you would read something online, news or whatever, and don't understand it or have an idea or want to say something, uh, say say something that the world conceivably everybody in the world could read. Uh, it would be unbelievably frustrating. Oh yeah, to be able to do that. Yeah, and it, that seems to me to be a much more natural way of doing things. And, and don't you um, so, think, not to interrupt, but don't you think that, um, I mean, it is impacting society today because the youngsters are doing that. They're reading everything online. They're finding out stuff. They're questioning institutions. They're questioning, you know, the need for an education. They're, uh, they're actually, they're thinking. They're not, they're not just in this lockstep model. So I don't think it's an accident, just as exactly as this is happening at the same time. Um, behavioral economics and, and the like are discovering that our brains are unreliable instruments that left to themselves our brains will uh, look for confirmation of what we already believe they will um, people tend to it actually turns out the less you know about something the more convinced you are that you're an expert and this is just, it's like optical illusions you know, it's just something your brain does because mm. the brain was not created to to do what we want it to do to understand the world. So it, while I completely agree with you, and I'm very enthusiastic about what's happening to knowledge on the net because people do connect and they do talk with one another and they ask questions and they, they chip in what they know, um, and it's become conversational, which I think is just a huge yeah. step forward for us. At the same time, we have to be very careful that our brains aren't fooling us into believing um, falsehoods that we we like to believe. Right. That, that fit our bias, reason. or yeah, yeah right. Confirmation bias. Yeah, right? exactly. I mean, it's, it's very dangerous. 
Um, I have a friend named Ethan Zuckerman who has a book called Digital Cosmopolitans, um, and he is, he shares the, my enthusiasm for the Internet. He loves the Internet, but he is a pretty serious researcher, and he has good evidence that even though the Internet lets us connect with anybody around the world, yeah. all around the world we're not doing that. Um, we are sticking with with our uh, yeah people who are like us right oh, that's true uh, whatever you however you want to define that mm-hmm. talk yeah America. yeah and we're, we're not broadening our horizons we're just deepening our hole <laughs> so that's a really nice way of putting it I'd <laughs> want to maybe not be that extreme about <laughs> yeah. it but we, 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 we do we, we like what we hear so we keep going to that more yeah, uh, yes mm. um, and you're just warning us be careful. I, I am. Um, I also think, though, that this complaint about the Internet, which I take very seriously, I think it's one of the most serious of the complaints, um, maybe that is that we, we listen to people who are like us. We hang, it, it maybe misunderstands how understanding itself works, at least as I understand it. So that um, if you, oh, I don't know, it, if you um, are, let's take politics, you're uh, on the left, you're on the right, doesn't matter, whichever one, and there's a Supreme Court ruling and it's technical and you don't understand exactly what it means. Mm-hmm. Does it help or does it, you know, does it help my side? You are very, if, first of all, you're very likely to go to a site that shares your political point of view. Yeah. Um, now, in one sense, that's bad. But on the other hand, no, of course you are. Of course you are. You're not, you know, if you're, if you're sort of a Fox News person, you're going to go to a Fox News type of site to understand it. And if you're, uh, you know, MSNBC or whatever the other one is, um, you'll go to that side. Because understanding is contextual. Understanding takes something new and assimilates it into an existing context. And that's how understanding, that's, that's how understanding works. Yeah. It's not surprising, and I don't think it's, nece- it's, it's necessarily evil that we hang out with people who share our beliefs and our values, because that's how we understand things. Right, right. So there's a benefit, but it's limiting. Yes, exactly. Both those things. Yeah. Um, So our expectations that we would all become global citizens um, from the early days of the web, uh, maybe those are unrealistic. Uh Uh-huh. Um, it would be more more realistic to hope that we will, in addition to seeking out beliefs that are like ours and people who are like us, we will also learn how to listen to people who are not like us. Yeah. And that is a, that's a hugely important thing, but it's also really, really hard to do because you don't have the context you do mm-hmm. to understand. No, and yeah, and you almost do need you need a little guidance on the way. Uh I wish we had more time, David. This is um it's so enlightening and important of a discussion. Again, everybody go look up the Clue Train Manifesto and and the great works of uh Dr. David Weinberger. I mean, really, uh you're a forward thinker on this and um I think it's great that we stretch our brain this way. David, thank you so much again for being with us. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. One, wonderful, wonderful stuff. Um, folks, we, it's a tool. It's a great, powerful, incredible tool. And know your bias. Know your tendency. And we need, we need the support groups that we love to go to. We also need to be willing to stretch and look into other areas to broaden our minds as well. Powerful stuff. We'll take a break, come back, and wrap up this first hour or the second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Technology and family, they go hand in hand, right? I mean, when I was a kid, grab a stick, go hit a tree. (laughs) That was my childhood. Stick tree games. But now our kids can have iPhones, iPads. It's a different day. It's a different age. And I've talked about it on the show before about how many times I've told my kids something and then they Googled it and they corrected me. No, Dad, it's 184,000 miles. Be quiet. Just be quiet. Do you remember back in the day when you didn't have to be exactly accurate? Because the latest Encyclopedia Britannica you had was 14 years old? Nope, not anymore. Now, folks, you got to deliver. Now you got to be able to hit it right on the mark, and you got to hit it on the mark every single time. So technology, it's not going away. And I do believe that there is a time and a place where we're going to have to figure our lives out enough to start leading the technology instead of letting it lead us and beat us up. So let me give you some tips and some tools for um, for leading the technology in your life, in your family, not just reacting to it, not just having to take it the way it is. Let's just teach you some basic skills for how you and your family can manage the technology <clears throat> in your life. First thing, I would make it an overt conversation. I would bring it out of the darkness. I would throw it up right into the middle of a conversation with your family. And I would simply say, technology, I'm worried, folks. I'm worried, kids. What, what, what do you see happening with it? And if I were you, I'd try to get your kids to start teaching you about what's really happening with technology. Because to let you in on a crazy little secret you don't have a clue what's really going on with technology because your kids know stuff you don't even think is possible. They have information you didn't even know was accessible. They have tools they're using that they don't you don't even you think you know. You think you know. You think you know what Snapchat is? You don't even know how they're using it, I bet. So what's cool is when I open a discussion up with my kids, some of the younger ones will tell us stuff that the older ones are doing. Some of the older ones will tell us stuff that their friends are doing. And it opens up a whole new conversation that for all of us becomes pretty enlightening. Um, And I'd even overtly talk about uh, issues like pornography and what happens when they see pornography online what they should do. Um, I wouldn't just demonize it. I wouldn't just sit there and blow it up and make it, you know, this horrible thing. I mean, it's horrible. But what I would teach my kids is what to do when they see it. I wouldn't just teach them that it's just gross and horrible. I would teach them that when you see it, do this. Turn off the computer. Come and find me and we'll, we'll get rid of it. Don't be afraid. I don't because the minute you demonize it, folks, and the minute you start making it a horrible, horrible thing that shames the person, all of a sudden they're going to take it underground and you're not going to have access to that child. 
The downside to um, like pornography, for example, is many of the people that are actually using it and becoming addicted to it, they are they have anxiety. They're they're anxious and they're using it as a anti-anxiety. They're using it as something that will calm them down, make them relax. It's the brain chemistry behind a lot of this technology that's the problem. It's not always the content. Like we always talk about the violence of the video games. But violence aside, those kids playing video games, it's medicating their brain. That's why they're doing it is because it medicates them. It numbs them. So we can argue about violence all day or we can argue about pornography all day. In my world, I'm more worried about the medication effect. (laughs) There's a reason they're choosing to go be medicated by that. So watch out for it and be careful because if you shame your child, if you shame your family too much about this technology or about what you saw on their phone and you shame them and you call them evil and you call them dirty and guess what's going to happen? They will go underground. They will take the issue and they'll hide it underground. And the minute it goes underground, you're not going to be able to deal with it as well. So instead, just address it full on. Talk about the impact of it. Talk about what happens when we get um, caught up into some technology. Talk about what uh, about balance. Talk about moderation. Talk about why it's important to be able to read and why it's important to read books, not just play video games. Video games are great. And I'm going to bet, folks, that our future is going to be filled with video game opportunities. More and more occupations are going to be coming from these video gaming industries because a lot of our interface, a lot of the ways that we're going to interact with computers are going to be coming from some of the ways that they're already doing video gaming. We already know that we can now have drone pilots that are video game experts that can now go work with the military and fly drones all over the world. Well, yeah, but that's only one thing. Well, except that we also found out that there's technology teams – that can go get scholarships at universities around the country by playing on a video game team. And video or uh, universities are now sponsoring video game teams and scholarships are being won. So your kid could actually go on scholarship to a university, a nice university, because they're a video gamer. What? That's not even a sport. You know what? It is. It's starting to be. Technology, folks, it's not going away. And we have to play it at a different level than we've ever played it before. So be careful. Be careful of demonizing them. Be careful of demeaning or shaming your child because because they play video games. Be careful of shaming them if you've caught them looking at pornography or something like that. I get that that's your instinct and I get that it's against your value system. I'm totally with you. And the shame is going to do two things. It's going to probably increase the likelihood of them going back to it to medicate. It's also going to um, end up taking the the issue, the sin, the the tech addiction or whatever underground. So be careful. Be careful. There's really not a good purpose to ever shame someone. Or stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know those millennials. They're just so lazy. As I look at Ben yawning through the middle of my show. They're not lazy, folks. They were misunderstood. Misunderstood, totally. Yep. And they were basically like monsters created to fell. That's what I was thinking, too. So let me give you some other coaching tools. And this isn't just for millennials. This would be for some some ideas for how you can coach other people when they bring you their problem. Right? Because it's easy you know, you may have a friend that constantly comes and brings you all of their issues, and you need to fix this for me. Um, but if you're going to coach people, and this would work great with millennials, you know, in coaching them on their own uh, issues as well. But um, I'm going to give you just five basic keys, okay, as we go through this coaching corner. Uh, the first key is to know that the answers, any answer, or I call them a hook, a hook might be something that keeps somebody stuck. All of their answers, all of their hooks are in them, not you. So when somebody comes to ask me a, um, you know, a question, but it's involving them or their life or their uh, experience in the world, when it's about them, the answers are in them, not me. And you got to realize that as a coach. And there's a lot of value to knowing that because if I understand the problems are in them, the issues are in them, then... Honestly, then I can uh, kind of make it more about them. I also don't have to be offended if they use or take my advice or not. Um, I also can know that if I give a solution that doesn't work because I probably didn't unhook the right issue in them. So I want you to be thinking about somebody that comes up to you, asks you a lot of questions, wants your advice, maybe somebody that doesn't seem to take it a lot, uh, or or the people that maybe are around you wanting insight but don't necessarily ask for it. Know that their issues, their answers are in them. And I'm convinced that uh, that those issues are in them. And I, I, want them, I want them to be responsible for the fact that this is your world. A lot of times I'll ask somebody a question and they're like, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Well, you must. I don't know is your fast answer that you're just telling me as a coach – but you're the only person that knows why you do what you do, right? I mean, I can guess why you do it. I can surmise. But you're the one with all of the information. You're the one with all the data. So make sure when you coach somebody that the answers are inside of them, even if it's just coaching them to kick a ball in a goal. And if if they have the inability to do it, then that hook is stopping them. But that hook is inside of them. And the job of a really good coach is to get inside that person and help that person find out what their answers are. Um, one reason that that's important, too, is because in motivation theory, it would say that unless this person uh, – unless the answers are coming from this person, they're less likely to be motivated to actually do anything about it anyway. So turn it back on them and uh, let me show you how we do that. One way to do it is to use questions, right, to turn on some lights. So like, let's say a mother came in and, you know, I don't – 
my son, we, we were going to move him to a new school. I'm pretty sure it's, I mean, it's an important thing. I'm not sure he's going to like it, but I, I want to move him to this new school. I think it's better for him. And um, they might just right out of the chute say, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I don't know your son. I don't know everything about what's going on here. So be careful to not just jump on that answer. Well, yeah, I would totally move him. I was moved to a new school and I was his same age and I turned out great. Um, instead, use some questions, right? So, you know, just use some questions like, you know what? I don't I don't know what to do about moving your son yet, but, you know, it sounds like you're really considering it. Um, but before I answer this, can I ask a few questions? Like, so what are your goals for your son and his situation? And try to help him – by just asking the question, what are your goals, it allows them to have to go evaluate their goals. Or, uh, you know, what what do you perceive the problems might be with moving him to this area, to this new school? What does your heart tell you about this decision? What does your mind tell you? You know, and which of those two do you trust more? Which answer do you trust more? Another question you could just simply ask is, why are you asking someone else's advice on this? Why are you not just making the decision yourself? But push on them, right? Because, and push with questions. And let these questions not be to trap them, not be to beat them up, not even just so you know how to answer this person. Ask the question so that this person has to explore what they are doing, right? If the, if the issue is in them, then ask the questions that help them explore it. The more information we gather here, it's also going to do two things. It's going to give me more data, but it's probably going to lower their emotion about this decision. Anytime somebody brings me a big you know, bundle of emotion, I usually like to get them talking and sharing their feelings about the emotion. So – First step, understand their answers and hooks are in them, in them, not me. Second is use questions to turn the lights on. My goal is just to get information. Once I can figure out what their goals are with their son and what's the history of the situation and what are they feeling right now about it and why are you asking me, why aren't you asking someone else and what does your gut tell you, a lot of those might – they might just answer it themselves, right? Another thing I like to do is as they're talking is I reflect back what I hear them saying. I'll reflect back. So it sounds like you really like to have your child try another school, but you're afraid he'll lose friends if he goes to the new school. Is that what you're saying? And I just hold it up back to what they were to them so that they have to look at what they're saying. And the way I do that is I just basically paraphrase what they just told me. And then I say, so is that what you're saying? And then they have to agree or disagree. Well, yeah, that's – well, and it's it's not just like that. I also – I don't want to feel like I'm too demanding that I'm pushing my son this way. Now, the more they talk, I love it because the more information it gives me about them, but it also allows me to maybe look a little bit deeper at what their motives are, what's driving them, what their concerns are. If this mother, for example, keeps saying, I just don't want to make the decision for him. I just I want I I don't want to make a mistake and I feel like I might be pushing him too hard. But then I'd go talk more about that. Man, it sounds like you feel like you're applying a lot of pressure about this decision. Tell me more about that and then let them explore that issue. Does that make sense? 
So as they're sharing their issues, the issue's usually never the real issue we're discussing. This isn't about school. This is about this mother's concerned about her son. She's concerned, and she wants to make a change for her son. And she's also concerned that the change will create other problems, like he will lose his friends, or she's just being too demanding. So if you hold it up, don't agree with it, don't disagree with it, don't argue it. I don't even give other advice. I just say, I just kind of let them kind of sift through what they're thinking about. And by not taking a position, then they don't have to like, you know, retract into their position, and then we don't have to debate about it. Keep it very open so we can keep this issue moving until we find out what's going on. Then another rule I like to use is I point out their inconsistencies. So it sounds like you're worried about your son and, you know, and his grades, and yet you also don't want to feel like you're making the decision for your son. Is that what you're, is that what you're feeling? This, that's a little bit of an inconsistency, right? You want him to move on. And you're concerned it's not a great idea. Point out the inconsistencies. What I find many times, it's the inconsistencies in our thinking that come out in a conversation. And if we can hold it up, not call them on it. Oh, it sounds like this is what's really going on. You don't need to be the pop psychologist. Just I'm noticing that you you really feel like you're pushing your kid too hard. And... You also really feel strongly that he needs to move on. Talk to me about that. And then if I can get them to be honest a little bit more about the inconsistency, that's where I see a lot of truth come out when I'm coaching couples, when I'm working with people. Um, it's, it's pretty interesting stuff. And so point out those inconsistencies. And then last and certainly not least, be cautious about giving advice, Right? Be cautious about giving advice. And one reason I say that is because um, people take your advice, right? So if you give advice, people are going to take it. It's one of the weirdest things I learned being a kind of a radio TV personality is people actually take your advice. Be super careful offering it. The other reason I want you to be super careful offering advice is because um, they also need people to blame. So if they don't like your advice or if your advice backfires, you're the one that gave it. So they will hold you accountable to it, right? Five basic, easy coaching steps. Know your answers and hooks are in the people you're talking to, not you. Use questions to turn on some lights. Reflect back what you hear them saying. Point out their inconsistencies, cautiously, of course. And be careful giving advice, folks. Be careful. I've seen people advise a divorce because their friend gave them that advice. Be careful the advice you give anybody, um, especially if you haven't done the other steps before it. Stick with us, folks, helping you live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, nowhere is information circulated more than on the Internet, and nothing spreads faster than fear. Ironically, it's as if fear brings people together. 
Tweets are circulated, articles are shared, and news coverage multiplies because stress and fear are contagious. Uh, from a health crisis like the Ebola virus, do you remember that? Uh, ISIS threats and worries about the economy, and most recently the bombing in Brussels. Our media is driven by fear. Why are we so easily influenced by fear, and what are the consequences of such fear-motivated media? Joining us today is uh, uh, is Andrian uh, Berard. Writer in residence at Delta State University. She uh, is also the author of a recent article, Nothing Snowballs Online Like Fear How Online Fear Feeds Political Smear Campaigns, Stock Market Rumors, and ISIS Propaganda. It's an interesting uh, article that she brings up. One of the most, I think, interesting things about it is you all remember, think back to uh, the Ebola virus. Do you remember? And do you remember a doctor from the United States had contracted the Ebola virus? And we were terrified about the idea of him coming back to the United States with the virus. Do you remember the nurse that had Ebola? And all of a sudden that we couldn't find a way. Uh, remember, she she didn't have the virus when she got here, but they kept her contained in her home. And remember all of that fear mongering going on. Do you remember watching uh, in certain hospitals where like in Dallas, there was another outbreak where a man had the Ebola virus. And do you remember we even turned on uh, CNN, any national channel, and we could watch the ambulance driving this person to the hospital to be quarantined in, in different places. So it fear. It creates an incredible, incredible um, uh, contagion effect. And all of a sudden, we thought for sure we knew that uh, Ebola was going to spread all throughout the country. Do you remember also we were talking about other policies, closing the borders, not allowing people into the country for, that have been from other countries? And do you remember um, the fear mongering that happened there? It's contagious and it doesn't go away. It's not like all of a sudden we're just going to, you know, just not have fear. But it also uh, – it's an important thing, especially as we think about the political candidates this year. It might be scary if all of a sudden a candidate says to themselves, hey, I'm maybe I just use more fear to spread my message. You know? I just become a fear monger. Democrats are always saying Republicans are fear mongers. How much truth is truth and how much truth needs to be shared – Again, our guest is Adrian um, uh, Beard, and she is Adrian Berard, and she is the um, the uh, author of this article. Nothing snowballs online like fear. How online fear feeds political smear campaigns, and we're honored to have her on the phone. Adrian, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me on, Matt. Great to have you. And this this article, I I, I mean, I know you're a you're an incredible writer. I've I've been looking at all the awards you're winning all over for your writing. This seems like a really interesting subject. How did you choose to write about this topic? You know, I think it starts as any journalist. They're just aware of their own ignorance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what it was that was happening when I was reading content online and sharing it. I wanted to know my own physiology to understand what is it that makes me, one, afraid of what I see online and compels me to share fearful information online. Because, you know, if I look at my news feed or my friend's news feed, especially right now, right after what just happened yeah. in Brussels, it's just chock full of really sort of horrifying images, a lot of scary commentary. 
So where does that come from in our biology that makes us compelled to share terrifying information? I mean, especially I'm and I'm glad as a journalist you're doing this because there there also is a there's a media side to this, right? Because journalism, I mean, media sells better too if there's probably a fear component to it. Exactly, and it's actually not just media, right? I mean, we're culpable, right? Yeah. But um, also in terms of advertising, if you notice now, um, you'll see a switch where before, maybe you look a decade and it was sort of the happy Budweiser frog, funny jokes. You fast forward now and you have things like the puppy monkey baby. (laughs) And it's all of these sort of fearful, strange images that advertisers are putting out there. Why? Because they go viral. And studies have shown this, though. Two years ago, the Wharton School of Business released a study which basically had the recipe for for virality in it. And the researchers there said, everything that we see that is going viral is a product of information that induces anxiety, so Hmm. something that stresses you out. And if you want that, you know, they use the case of a BMW ad campaign that was called The Hire. And basically, they blew the cars up. They kidnapped people. They did everything you're not supposed to do in advertising, which is make the brand look bad. Oh, wow. And it turns out they had millions of views within a month. They were up to 11 million views. So clearly, you know, all the old rules that used to apply don't anymore. Yeah, isn't that's true. Like when you go watch stuff online it it might be you know people doing dangerous kind of ex gameish type of activities or kids you know doing stupid things on skateboards and it, it does it, it stresses you out so in a weird way i guess there's a there's a natural uh, i guess evolutionary reason for this fear talk about what you learned about what drives just the human nature to be so attracted to the fear issue Right. So what we're talking about when we talk about fear, I should just say that that's a evolutionarily that's an ancient part of our body in terms of our emotions. Right. That's processed. Fear is processed in the oldest part of our brain. So when we talk about joy or sorrow, that's processed in the part of our brain. It's a little bit newer. It's the neocortex of our brain, which deals with rewards. And we have stories for those. Let's say I got a promotion. I feel happy about it. The story I tell myself is I worked hard to get that promotion. Well, the fear region doesn't have any of that narrative part. We It starts acting before we know what's happening. Um, so just hypothetically, you're walking in the woods. You see something on the ground. It's dark. It looks a little wet. It's long. You freeze because your brain is telling you it's a snake before your mind says, actually, hmm. that's just a stick. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's kept us alive, right? You think about it. You want to react to that lion before you can process that. It's a lion coming at you. Yeah, you want that extra step. Exactly. (laughs) So it makes sense biologically in terms of our own survival as a species why fear would have that unique place in our brain and our bodies. Also, we share fear in a way that's unique, right? So not only do I react when I see a lion coming, my body automatically responds. But the same thing happens when I see someone else seeing a lion coming at them. Mm. It would make sense that I would respond to that as well. The only problem is now our bodies go through the exact same process as here comes a lion, better run. 
when we're sitting in a traffic jam or there's a line at the bank or, you know, we're getting on Twitter and seeing that there's been, you know, an attack on Brussels. So this evolutionary ancient part of us that kept us alive for the entire legacy of mankind is now sort of working against us because we can't differentiate, physiologically speaking, between a lion attacking us and, you know, a traffic jam on the interstate. Well, and... That, that that mirroring process that those mirror neurons. So if I'm watching the 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 people panicking and running from the bombing in Brussels, my brain is going to mirror in the same chemical and even create, I guess, the same chemical equation or a similar one as those are those people are experiencing. So it actually becomes it's like it's like real TV. I mean, this is. I'm experiencing what they're experiencing, and I guess that is the attraction to why people keep pulling it up and then forwarding it on, huh? Exactly. I mean, we're a social species, so mirror neurons were discovered in monkeys, right? But yeah. They, they were found by accident, right? So this neuron was firing when a monkey was holding a banana, but it was also firing when that monkey saw another monkey holding a banana. Right. And the researchers were saying, well, what's going on? This can't be right. He's not touching a banana. But sure enough, it's the part of our body that sees somebody experiencing or doing something that responds. And it works with movement, right, the parts of our brain that tell us, you know, what to lift things. But it also works with emotion, so we can feel empathy, which is key, again, as a social species. We need to understand what someone is experiencing. The problem is now, um, with technology the way it is, right, it's evolved so much quicker than our own biology. So we can see someone on a screen experiencing a terrorizing event, and we empathize with that because our biology tells us to. The mirror neurons are, are firing just as if we were experiencing that terror ourselves. Mm. And and this has happened over and over. You gave great examples of like the Ebola virus, and I was talking about it, I think, before you got on the air, that, I mean, do you remember watching them bringing these doctors that had been contaminated or had been infected with the Ebola virus, and they were in their full body suits and in the back of an ambulance, and all the news stations were covering it, and we were thinking, oh, here we go. Ebola, Ebola all over the United States. It's going to spread. We're all going to die. And um, but it, so it almost doesn't matter how real the threat is, is it? I mean, because our body is just going to create the reaction. Exactly. So that was interesting. So one of the, the researchers that I profile, mostly I talk about his work in the piece. So his name's Emilio Ferrara. He's out of USC. And he was looking at the Ebola virus and is now starting to look at the Zika virus which he looks at information diffusion. So how does information travel, and then how do we make sense of that information, and how do we verify whether it's accurate or not? Hmm. And so he looked at the Ebola virus, and he said, well, why is it that people believe this is a threat when, you know, a Gallup poll that was released in November of 2014, after there had only been, I think, six confirmed cases in the United States, Americans listed Ebola as their top three healthcare concern, right? So the first one, I think, was access. Next was affordability. The third was Ebola. Wow. You know, only six people in the country had yeah. the, the virus, but it, for some reason it was this overhyped threat and everybody believed it. Well, that's, that's, again, bringing back in the biology, right? I mean, it's a mechanism in our brain that we're supposed to respond to these threats as if they were re- real, 
before we can interpret whether they're real or not. And that's the unique thing about fear, you know, sorrow and joy, you know, other emotions don't function that way. Mm -hmm. They go through a different chain of command in the brain, but fear really gets right at the root, right at the most ancient part of ourselves. And that's what we're acting from. Um, So I guess you could say it's irrational, right? That it doesn't reach the rational part of our brain. Um, That is so true, though. I mean, again, it's not it's not about accuracy, is it? It's about movement. Get going. Get out of here. Get running. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a big deal. And so because that was one of the things you called it. um, Or I guess was that his research where they then found that people were then promoting and and sending out all of these kind of fear rich tweets about about Ebola. And and that started the spreading. Exactly. So he looked at, he basically tracked Ebola exactly as you would track a virus itself. He looked for patient zeros. And often that was news organizations. Um, CNN and Fox News were the two main culprits that he found, but there were others as well. And then he looked at, like, if, if a tweet from a news organization is a stone and you drop it in a pond, he looked at all the waves and how far out they went. And so he traced everything back to these patient zeros, but then he looked at it, how big of an expanse does this create? And he found through his research that fear-rich tweets travel, they create bigger waves and they travel faster than any other type of emotion that's embedded in a a tweet or in in information sent out online, Mm. Um, which had not been looked at in the same way before. And he's actually still working on publishing a piece that links in the Zika virus as well, but he's he wants news organizations one, and then groups like the World Health Organization to keep in mind that when they send out this information, it's going to go viral quickly because there's fear attached to the information they're sending out. So how do we tell people about an outbreak of a virus without creating an outbreak of hysteria? That's right, and they. He's developing algorithms now to determine precise ways that we can do that so that we don't have, you know, exactly what happened with Ebola, where it's just a threat that is not as big as people believe it is, and they're experiencing stress, they're experiencing hysterica, hysteria mm. for really no no reason. Yeah. Uh, Adrian, let's, let's hang on a sec. We'll come back and continue this discussion. Man, incredible, especially now. It's one thing when the health department's trying to give information out. But boy, how could you manipulate the the tweets if you know fear spreads and you want to spread your message because you're a political candidate? Wow, let's just really, you know, create some fear. Um, interesting uh, learning we're having here. Stick with us, folks. We'll come back more with uh, the journalist Adrian uh, uh, Adrian Berard, who is the author of um, this book, nothing or this article, "Nothing Snowballs Online Like Fear." Stick with us, folks. Helping you. Uh, Learn what you need to learn to kind of sort through life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
We are on the line right now uh, with uh, Adrian Berard, who is the uh, a journalist and author of an article, Nothing Snowballs Online Like Fear. And uh, she's been talking to us about why fear is so contagious. It really, it's the uh, online fear that feeds political smear campaigns, stock market rumors, ISIS propaganda, everything, folks. And uh, she's also discussing the media's role in all of this as well. Um, Adrian, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks, Matt. Good to have you. And again, you are also a writer in residence at Delta State University, and you graduated with your graduate uh, with a graduate degree from the School of Journalism at Columbia University. You've been a busy young lady. I've been pretty busy these past few years. I know, <laughs> but I love I love reading what you've been writing too, because I mean, this is an issue that now we're even seeing in the political uh, debate, and it, we even heard just very quickly Ted Cruz came right out right after the Brussels uh, bombings, and um, now he's you know saying we need to go into communities of with Muslim, where Muslims are living and police them and uh, start spreading the fear, I guess. Yeah, and I think it's important to keep in mind, you know, um, I think, I, so I live in Mississippi, right? That's where I'm the writer in Mississippi. Yeah. And, um, but I grew up in the Northeast, and I think when people talk about Mississippi, they say, oh, well, you know, there's a lot of ignorance, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think... Or um, when we're talking about this, right, that people are not actually coming from a place of ignorance when they respond this way. So, you know, for instance, right, we have what happened in Brussels yesterday, and I'm hearing responses here in Mississippi that people genuinely are afraid of a terrorist attack here in their hometown. And that's not coming from a place of ignorance necessarily, right? That's actually biologically we're we're predisposed to react to a threat like that as assuming it will happen to us. So um, there's a way in which politicians can prey on that. Whether they know it or not, they seem to have discovered the recipe for virality in this age where, you know, Ted Cruz can tweet something like that out and it can be shared, you know, hundreds of thousands of times in a matter of minutes. Um, when we have to understand our own biology in terms of what role fear plays in order to understand why this phenomenon happens. Hmm. I I don't want to give <laughs> too much credit really to anyone because we're all in the same boat. We all have the same region of our brain called the amygdala that reacts to fear the same way. It's totally irrational. It hijacks the rest of our body. It hijacks even our own rational mind. So right. we're reacting to these things in a way that's totally irrational but at the same time, biologically, that's what we're supposed to be uh-huh. doing. And, and it feels and it feels right because I've always, when I work with my clients, I teach them that that fight or flight, that amygdala reaction. It's you're supposed to have confidence, even if you're wrong. Be confident and do what your body's like telling you to do, which would be protect yourself. The problem is if you just think a little bit longer about it, you could move that same emotion to the higher brain, I call it, or the the neocortex, the prefrontal cortex, and turn it into something else, right? We could actually learn and sit there and, I mean, it it doesn't mean you don't still feel the feeling, but gather more data. Like how many terrorist threats are there in parts of Mississippi? Yes. Exactly. The thing is that that neocortex actually is the last step in the process. Yeah. 
So every other part of ourselves, and we can even, in the amount of time it takes to write a tweet, the neocortex doesn't even have to be activated Right. Yet. You can so write a tweet from your amygdala. Exactly. It's your amygdala that's creating all of these responses and reactions. And, I mean, you think about it, retweeting takes a fraction of a second. Right. So I see Ted Cruz put something like this out. I think, yes, this attack can come to me. I retweet it, and then my friends retweet it. And before you know it, you have this cascade of fear that's actually determining, you know, a political stance and promoting a political candidate. And everybody in the whole process is reacting from their amygdala, which is not the rational part of their mind, because fear works sort of the opposite way of other emotions. It mm. starts at the at the reactionary part first and then works its way up to the part yeah. that can make sense of it. Well, and that's also, I mean, just to get a little maniacal and devilish here, that's also assuming Ted Cruz just, you know, threw, popped that out himself. That also could have been a major uh, rewrite, 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 re-sculpting from his media team, his social media team, an hour spend it on it, an hour reading it, preparing it, and then sending it out, which would make it a manipulation of people's fear tend- tendency. Right. Does that yeah, make sense? It's hard to yeah. give people – I don't know who's no. read what. You know, there are plenty of studies out there that show exactly, you know – how social media and fear interact. Yeah. Um, and, you know, were I a political operative right now, yes, I would be reading all of these studies coming out because it will tell you a lot about how people react online, especially how they react to threats online um, and fear-laden, what's called fear-laden information, fear-laden tweets, fear-laden mm. uh, social media. Well, what do you suggest? Oh, we've only got a few more minutes, but what do you suggest we do as just the average reader of the media, of news, of information? What what would you just suggest we be doing so we don't immediately catch the fear wave? Well, part of it is being aware of your own biology, right? So you understand, okay, this is the fear mechanism kicking in. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's only so much of that you can do because you actually don't have control over that. So I think what it really takes is time. You know, I would say rather than being reactionary to news events or to, you know, political campaigns, I would say just wait for that fear response to go all the way through your body. Take deep breaths, you know, take about four or five minutes and let that rational part of your brain come in. Because if you're reacting immediately to these things, what you're doing is shortchanging yourself. You're not allowing your neocortex to actually process the information that you're about to disseminate. Yeah. No, that's great. That's great advice. And, and I mean, be a consumer, too. I mean, you also could turn it off. If it's overwhelming you, turn off some of this uh, media coverage. And because it, it was so easy to just get sucked in after every major disaster or tragedy or bombing um, to just watch hours on end, and that will just feed that that amygdala. Exactly. Yeah. You can just walk away from it. You know? yeah. And you will, it's not like you're going to fall out of touch with the world, but I think, especially when it comes to fear and stress, that can really build up, take a real toll on your body. So just to walk away from it, you know, Turn the television off, get off the social media for a little while, and you can feel your body goes from a stressful state. You can feel that relief yeah. even after just a short period of turning all of this off. 
It's great stuff. Uh, Adrian Berard, Bar- uh, we ca- we had your name wrong, Adrian, so I've called you everything under the sun. Hey, <laughs> yeah, Adrian, it's okay, Matt. <laughs> d- didn't you just, didn't you, though, just release a book? I'll have a book coming out in October. Okay. Um, it's called Water Tossing Boulders, How a Family of Chinese Immigrants Led the First Fight to Desegregate Schools in the South. Oh, neat. Oh, neat. Okay. Is that why you're yeah. in the South then? That's why I'm in the South, researching a book. Good stuff. Well, we appreciate you, Adrian. Keep up the great work. Okay. Take care, man. Thank you. Be good. Uh, interesting stuff. You know what, folks? You are the captain, right? You're the captain of your soul. Let's start leading this thing. Um, we don't have to just chase the media. Sometimes we can lead it. Sometimes we could ignore it. The feelings are natural. The reaction's natural. The response, up to you. The response to what you're feeling, totally up to you. And I think that's what separates us, right, from humans and maybe the rest of the animal kingdom is we're going to create a space and make a better choice. Stick with us. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Um, Here you go. The story for you now to uh, manage your fear on. Okay, so imagine you are a customer at a Minnesota gas station, and uh, all of a sudden this this semi-truck drives up onto a curb and into a tree. Okay? By the way, your fight or flight would kick in. You would be thinking, save the baby. (laughs) Save the baby. And you're, you're freaking out. You can't believe what's going on. You look inside the truck, and uh, up pops the cute little head of a golden Labrador retriever. Apparently, the truck had been idling, and it was put into gear somehow, because I don't know how that dog pushed in the clutch and then put it into gear. That's a hard thing for a dog to do. Maybe they don't have clutches anymore. I bet they don't. Somehow the idling truck was put into gear and then went through a parking lot across the street and over a curb. A passerby discovered the dog sitting in the driver's seat when he jumped in to stop the truck. Uh, David Stagora was at the store when he heard the truck smash into a tree in a parked car. He couldn't see the driver but saw the dog climb up (laughs) near the driver's side. Police say the truck was taken off the road and the driver had occupied truck running in a nearby parking lot i'm telling you so this guy jumps in and instead of freaking out he jumps in and saves the day and a cute little labrador maybe it was on the way maybe it could have kept going maybe gone to a schoolyard of kids and this labrador would then be you know tomorrow's news of labrador runs over an entire school of kids We all have these fight-or-flight moments in our life, right? And uh, a great point that Adrian made earlier, when we have the fight-or-flight moment, one thing to just be clear of, it doesn't usually mean it's an accurate piece of information. It just is something that you need to act on. So it's actionable, not accurate, which is why you have such an immediate need to do something or move or run or fight. And uh, what we might want to do whenever we can is uh, avoid any immediate danger and instead then just take a step aside and allow your brain to catch up with you and gather more data. It's just a dog. He means no harm. 
He's not going to hound us. I'm not sure about that. No pun intended. Ben, don't make me go there. Go check us out on iTunes and tune in. Go find our BYU Radio app. Download that so you can get back to all of our podcasts, hundreds of them, uh, for you to archive and, and to go listen to. 